it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us joining us all the way from California, very early in the morning. Uh, we have Jake Taylor is the CEO of Fardham Street Investments. He is also one of the co-hosts of one of my favorite podcasts, Value After Hours with Tobias Carlisle and Bill Brewster. And Jake also wrote one of my favorite books, The Rebel Allocator. Jake, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, I guess, could you kind of give a brief synopsis? Like, how did you get into investing? What started you down this path? Sure. Pleasure being here. Thanks, gents, for having me on. My background was I got an undergrad degree in economics and I graduated in 2003. If you remember back then, there actually were not that many jobs available for people with no experience, which was me. And so (laughs) I happened to very fortunately get this, an operator and training program at the California ISO. And they taught me basically in a year, an electrical engineering degree and how to run the power grid. So I went through that program, got a job running the power grid, and actually did that for 12 years. But while I was in working for the power grid, i not sure exactly what I wanted to do when I grew up, even at that point, even though I had, that was a pretty good career. I went back to get my MBA in a working professional program at UC Davis, and so like nights and weekends. And the first year that I was there at Davis, I happened to win this lottery to go back to Omaha and have lunch with Warren Buffett. <laughs> and one of those, you know, like where the classes come and visit him. And of course, it was amazing, as you would expect. I mean, he's so good. And when I started digging in more about Buffett, I learned that, wait, he's just trying to find a deal on things. He just wants to pay less than what something is worth. I felt like I'd been doing that my whole life, you know, buying something on Craigslist and then sell it on eBay in an arbitrage and, you know, always looking to find a deal, never paying retail. And when you take that concept and apply it to the purchase and ownership of publicly traded companies, you know, little slices of a business, they call it value investing. And it made perfect sense to me. And so I realized that that was what my calling was. And so I started working towards, you know, starting Farnham Street Investments, actually with my boss at the time at the Energy Place, my mentor, he was also really into Buffett. And so we started a fund together. And, but I did both for more than five years running both the company and working as a kind of a, as a power system operator. So, and eventually I was able to make the transition to full-time, like my passion. And and since then, I've just been trying to tinker around with projects that I think are interesting and kind of like keep me moving forward and making progress. And that, you know, included writing a book and, you know, writing quarterly letters and doing podcasts and 
and lots of other projects. Yeah, that's awesome. So you have definitely gone a path that I would think that most people probably have not followed. So, you know, how did you feel about going from energy to investing? Was that a hard transition once you kind of stepped away from that? You know, it is a little difficult in that you don't know what you don't know if you're just an outsider. You know, if, if I'd come up, you know, and I'd worked at Goldman Sachs or something, and then like I would have had a much better lay of the land probably. But then I also on the flip side, would have probably learned a lot of things that were maybe led me into some blind alleys as well and made you think like everyone else thinks. So to actually, I think it's in the, in the end of the day, it's actually an advantage to be have that outsider kind of mindset, as long as you kind of avoid some of those real obvious big mistakes that are kind of easy to make if you are an outsider. So I guess let's talk about those. What are some of the big obvious mistakes that people could make? Well, I mean, if you're trying to be in a professional, I'm almost thinking more in the compliance realm. Like you come in, gotcha. you just like, okay. you don't know that you're not allowed to say that or you're not <laughs> allowed to, you know, like things that you would have learned kind of on day one at Goldman mm-hmm. or even actually a big part is getting clients is hard if you didn't come from that sort of pedigree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you're coming in from an outsider and if you didn't grow up in a, you know, kind of a silver spoon environment, which I did not, it could be hard to stand up a business that is, you know, that is functional and has enough assets to really like make a living from it. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you know, like I said, there's pluses and minuses. Yeah, for sure. So how long have you been running Farnham Street now? Our first fund launched in 2008. Okay. Uh, nice time. So a little while. Yeah. Yeah. January, <laughs> January of 2008. I'm not even, okay. you know. October. So yeah, we we took the first, you know, that year on the chin, like pretty much performed with the market down 37% out of the gates. But, you know, I mean, if with the mindset was that we're going to be doing this for a a long time, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but you just keep one foot in front of the other. And we had some good years right after that, as you would probably expect, you know, when right. you value had a pretty good run there and especially, you know, 2009, 10, 11 ish. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was okay, but it definitely <laughs> Definitely not an auspicious start. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I guess kind of thinking about that, you've kind of you've gone through some different kinds of ups and lows and cycles, if you will, of the market. So has that affected kind of how you think about your investment strategy or the or the way that you look for companies and track those kinds of things? Yeah, I would say that like I think everyone, every investor is imprinted based on whatever market environment they sort of cut their teeth on. And so if you happen to be, you know, come of age in a a very bullish time period, you're probably a little bit more tuned and turned up towards, you know, right tail outcomes and, you know, big investment results that you're looking for. If you came up, you know, in the Great Depression, you probably are wired for the downside and thinking about, and I don't know if it's DNA related or if it's actually sort of like survivorship bias that like if you made it through that period, then, you know, like the the period kind of like winnowing down, you know, who survives and then therefore that's the population that's left after that time period. Whatever the mechanism is, I think that whatever you kind of cut your teeth in, you tend to carry that with you through your entire investment journey. And so I am very much kind of a downside protection minded guy. And I think about, you know, what's the worst case scenario? And I try to optimize for that. And you know, that mindset can serve you well at different time periods, but it can hamstring you as well. Like, you know, 2015 to 2020, I would say was a very difficult time for someone who was thinking about the downside because the downsides did not really materialize that much. And a lot of the upsides that came about that would might have been a little bit longer shots than you would have expected, but they came true. And you're going to look like an idiot if you are worried about the downside and there's nothing but, you know, upsides 
cashing in. So guilty. So um, <laughs> yeah, too. Does that mean banks are kind of out of the equation here because there was a lot of ugliness with the banking sector during that 2008 2009 period? I actually owned a fair number of the banks in 2011, 12, that 13 through that time period. And it was everything is always in relation to price. So there's ugly, but if the price is that much, you know, more attractive, like it's that beat up, then I can maybe get comfortable with it. There's no assessment of risk where price is not a huge component of that. So the banks I thought got unduly cheap then. We actually did okay in those, did pretty well. But there were at the time, if you remember, it was like the asset side of this is such a question mark. And the liabilities are very real always, right? Where are the holes in the balance sheet where this thing could explode? And if you can get comfortable with that, then you know how much are you paying for it? And at the time, you know, it, it was well south of 50 cents on the dollar for a lot of them. And we figured out that the assets were, even if there were some impairments, it wasn't going to be half of the bank's balance sheet was garbage. And it, actually, if, if anything, the underwriting got really strong around that time period because there had been so many problems before, especially on like residential real estate. So ironically, it was actually a great time for them to uh, because they had actually tightened up so much from and like Basel rules were also, you know, pushing them into a lot more conservative positioning. So anyway, like it was it actually wasn't that hard of a trigger to pull at that time based on the price. So I know this you keep going back to price. How does your holding period strategy factor into price? Do you ascribe more to the idea of buy until it's fairly priced and then get out? Or are you kind of on the other more like Buffett side of letting them run. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the right way to think about it is that over shorter periods of time, changes in multiple or the sentiment of that company are going to drive results a lot more. And over long periods of time, the difference in multiple fades and the return on the business, the return on equity or assets or however you want to measure invested capital is what will dominate how things work out for you as an investor. So when I first started out, I was a lot more short-term focused in that I was looking for a multiple re-rate of things that were super cheap, whether it was you know really low price to book or even net nets if I could find them. But what kind of happened is that, that those super cheap things really dried up around that time period. And so you just couldn't fill up an entire portfolio of them. So now what do you do? So you have to start worrying a little bit more about business quality. You're trying not to reach too much and overpay for things. But when you can't find these like no brainer, you know, tr- things trading for less than cash on the balance sheet, you have to find some new tools t- to get to work. And so that was part of my own, you know, the, a forcing mechanism to become a better investor. Like I needed that. Otherwise, I would have just probably hit out in net nets. And so now I tend to be more of a value buyer and a little bit of a growth holder if it converts mm-hmm. into that. And I try to look through a little bit deeper into, you know, a few years from my ownership. What might the business look like? And how cheap is it relative today to what it could look like in a few years? And trying to be real conservative with my assumptions, but you know, I wouldn't want to sell just because it ran up, you know, a little bit more than I was comfortable with before when there was still plenty of kind of IRR baked into where it was where the puck was going. Basically IRR for beginners who are not familiar with the term internal rate of return, basically the upside potential that the business can continue to grow. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. 
It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. And really, like my assessment of what the company is worth and how close are we to that assessment. Ideally, actually, like I would love to find situations where the multiple doesn't change at all. I buy it at a 10 times earnings and I hold it for a decade and I earn a a 15% return on equity that the company is generating internally. And I'll just ride that same multiple all the way through. But Mr. Market can kind of force your hand sometimes by, you know, if the price was to go up and I went from a 10 times multiple to let's say a 20, well, now all of a sudden, like my perspective return that I could expect starts to come down. And therefore, I'm starting to look for places to trade up potentially. But again, it always is this balance of factors of what do I know this company very well versus the new thing that I'm buying? Maybe I don't know it as well. And that's that can be a very dangerous place. And then what is the kind of risk reward and how certain am I as the business results that I'm hanging my hat on? And in a world now where there's a lot more disruption from technology, like it starts to get, it's kind of difficult to really, uh, and I think you really saw this with COVID where you know, 2020 was an insane year for, you know, like the economy just stopping. Who would have thought airlines with z- literally zero revenue? <laughs> like who was underwriting that in their analysis? <laughs> and then back to 2021, where you had just things like rocketing and like all over the place, work from home, completely changing how we do everything. And just a huge round trip in a lot of these companies that have kind of come back down to their trend lines where they were from 2019. Like normalizing any business today is incredibly difficult based on the last few years of numbers. Like it's a really hard task right now, like probably harder than at any point I I think I've seen in my career. 
That's a great insight. And I guess one of the things that I guess I'm curious about when you're talking about some of the price issues and some of the things that, how do you think about projecting some of those things forward? Is that something that you study the past and kind of project that forward? Or is it based on your experience by reading through all these companies and kind of understanding the businesses and where you think they're going to go? How certain do you feel, you know, when you make a bet on a company that this is going to come to pass? Usually not very certain, but (laughs) I mean, ideally you the right way to do this is to think in base rates. And so a base rate is if we looked at an entire population of businesses like this, and the closer that we can get describing this particular business that we're trying to project, if we can find a lot of companies that look like that business, the more that we can kind of hang our hat on the base rate. If we're just using very general terms, you know, it starts to decrease the chances that the base rate that we're using actually applies to this individual business. So the base rate can be for a lot of things, whether it's, you know, how much are the revenues of this company going to grow over the next few years? And so if we looked at, you know, companies that are like this, and the base rate said that, you know, companies this size in this industry with this particular, you know, niche that they're operating in have historically grown at 10%, let's say. That would be my base operating assumption. And now I have to have some kind of special insight into how the world works to want to deviate off of what that base rate is telling me. And so that's the ideal way to do it. Now, the execution of that is like where the art is in this. That's scientifically the right way to think about it. But to actually do it well requires, you know, the more experience that you have, I think really helps a lot in this. And this is where Buffett, you know, is still so good as a 90, you know, what is he now? He's 92. He has been reading newspapers, looking at companies, looking at the financials for, you know, more than 50 years. And he's been building these base rates in his head this entire time. And so he's got a very good idea about a lot of companies, even ones he doesn't own, what they are likely to do over the next five to 10 years. And so when something dislocates, the price, you know, gets away from what he thinks is a pretty obvious where this is going. He's ready to act like that. That's how he's able to make, you know, decisions in less than a day because he has a very good idea of what the base rates he can kind of expect. And as long as he stays within his circle of competence, which basically means like either I know the base rate or I know something special about the world that allows me to know why the base rate is not right in this particular situation. Then I know that like, that's how I can get comfortable with being able to make that kind of decision so quickly. That's awesome. So you're just confirming to me that Buffett has you know, a computer in his head and he's like a Michael Jordan as far as his intellect goes. You know, So for those of us mere mortals, how do we learn about base rates? Like, Where's a good resource to learn more about those? Yeah, Michael Mobison, who is one of the best authors and writers and researchers in our field, has a couple different papers on base rates that are very handy to have. So if you just Google Mobison, I think it's M-A-U-B-O-U-S-S-I-N, he will there'll be these uh, white papers on base rates that, that they actually give you some of the base rates for some industries that's kind of helpful. Do you have any favorites that you've leaned on in the past that you would be willing to share? whether it's revenue or any other category? Well, we could talk about mistakes that I've made in using base rates. If that's <laughs> sure, that's yeah. probably more instructive. <laughs> I did a little postmortem on Google in earlier this year. And what I was trying to do was figure out, like I'd been to Google headquarters. I have a lot of friends that work at Google. I recognized that Google was a special business a decade ago. Why did I not own it over at any point during that you know, 12 years, why would I pass on it? And what was I doing? And how do I not make that same mistake again? And so what it came down to was actually 
you know, Google was a very big company in 2015. And typically, historically, the base rate would tell you that large companies don't grow as fast because they've already saturated their markets. They're already giant. Maybe they've already got a lot of the low hanging fruit in what they're able to do for a customer. Well, that is true. However, I was using a base rate for kind of more industrial minded companies, which is what we had at the time. Like I didn't have, there was research that came out after actually from Mobison about how certain companies in the digital space are able to really defy the base rates of existing historical big companies and keep growing at these incredible rates, even though they're large. And so, you know, I had been using the wrong base rate. And when I would use that to kind of project revenue out and then, you know, assume some kind of a profit margin and give some kind of a, you know, multiple for that profit, I kept coming up with like, it seems like Google's fully priced this whole time. And yet it just keeps going up and up and up. And every time I would run kind of an assessment, I'd be like, it seems like it's already fully priced, like the growth's already baked into this. I don't see how I can win from here. But then, you know, if you use the newer base rate that's more applicable for this particular type of animal, then if I had been using that, I would have seen like, oh, wait, there's actually a lot of cheap growth still here if it follows that base rate. And that that would be how I would win. And maybe even margins are improving in some of these businesses as they get bigger. And now you also had, in fairness, a lot of multiple expansion on that, which I would have probably not. That's not what I typically tend to underwrite. Like I don't want to really win most of the time because everyone gets crazy excited about my businesses. Like I want to win because the business is doing well and serving as well. Now, sometimes they do get excited about it. And that's usually when I get tempted to sell a good business, which is actually a very frustrating position to be in. But <laughs> so that was where base rates led me astray at one point. And, you know, that's hopefully I learned from that and that I, you know, just keep working on finding the base, the next good base rate and the one that's most applicable to what it is that I'm studying. Why do you think Buffett and Munger missed on Google? Because I know they've admitted that they missed on it. Do you think it was kind of the same idea? I really have no idea because they actually, they're more guilty than I am, I would say, because they, (laughs) well, I mean, in the meetings, they've talked about how they recognized, well, one, they knew that newspapers, a one town, one newspaper situation is one of the best businesses of all time of the 20th century. They absolutely printed money. I mean, they made all the money that they ever wanted to make, basically. And because they had both sides captured, they had, you know, the more readership that they had, the more valuable it was to advertisers. And the more advertisers they had, the more pricing that they could charge for it. So they were in a fantastic situation. And Google is basically like the one town of the world internet's newspaper with classifieds and search. I mean, it's it's just an incredible business. And even to compound their error even more for Buffett and Munger, they had been paying a ton of money as Geico owners to Google and seeing <laughs> how well it was doing for them. So <laughs> like they had an inside, you know, like front row seat to see how Google was working for ads and driving eyeballs for Geico. And they recognized it. And yet somehow they still never pulled the trigger on it. So, you know, it makes me feel a little bit better that I was so stupid to not buy it. But uh, I don't know what their excuse is. (laughs) (laughs) I say that jokingly because the two best to ever have done it. Right. Of course. Of course. It does help one sleep better at night, knowing that even the greatest can make, you know, can miss and make mistakes, you know, from time to time that this game is not easy. And still get incredible results. That's the other nice thing about (laughs) this is that you do not have to bat you know, 900 or a thousand in this game to still do just fine. Why do you think there's this perception that you have to be perfect to do well in the markets? I don't know. Like a lot of it. I mean, the other thing I think that's, that goes missing a lot in that conversation is that it's really more about slugging percentage than batting average. So you can have a great 
individual pick. But if you don't put hardly any money behind it, I mean, it's almost as if you didn't even swing the bat. Whereas you can also, you know, have a marginal idea that does not that great, but maybe not that bad. But if you put a lot of money behind it, the opportunity cost of that idea can absolutely eat you alive of the things that you didn't invest in because you were, you had your money tied up in this, you know, dog for lack of a better term for a long time. So the position sizing is actually a completely different conversation than the stock picking. And it's probably just as important. Well, maybe we could chat about that a little bit. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Yeah. Do you have opinions on maybe somebody like you who does it professionally versus somebody who's kind of a DIY average investor? Do you think there's do you have thoughts on either side of that spectrum, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I would say, I, I mean, it's the same for everybody. I would say like Daniel Kahneman would tell you that overconfidence is the number one killer of behavioral biases. And so how do you combat overconfidence? Cut your position sizes down from what you think you know your gut is telling you and spread your bets around a little bit more. I know that that's not a very Mungerian kind of approach. Like Munger would tell you, put your, you know, the most money in your best idea, And if it's better than all your other ideas, like why water it down with your 10th best idea? Well, I think the world's a little bit more random than that for most of us, unless you are truly waiting for, if you're following Munger's approach, which I don't know if you guys know this, but like in running daily journals portfolio, he sat in treasury bills from like 2005 to 2009 and (laughs) did nothing And, you know, of course, there's no shot clock for him because he's, you know, he's Munger and he's running this company and he's totally in charge of it. But if you were a professional money manager who's supposed to be picking stocks and you had all your clients in treasuries four years, you're going to get fired. I mean, there's just no two ways about that. But then in 2009 comes along and he just loads up on a couple different things like Bank of America. And so he like just bet big when he had very overwhelmingly obvious smart things to do. And then he went back to, you know, doing whatever, designing dorm rooms and catamarans (laughs) and whatever else he's doing, reading books. But so that's one style. I just like you have to be I think it's important to recognize like matching your own personality with the style that you're trying to implement. And so if you are that kind of person that can can be doing other things and ignore markets for years on end, then you probably can do that. But for most people, I think you probably want to stay more fully invested most of the time and balance your position sizing out a little bit more because it's the world is a little more untamed than it seems. There's There be dragons more often than you realize. <laughs> so it's better to spread your bets a little bit more. And you know some diversification, I think, is called for. I love those examples. You know, when you talk about Munger in 2005, he had been an investor for like four or five decades. I don't know, probably longer than that. So he kind of knows what he's doing versus somebody who's maybe trying to approach the market for the first couple of years, thinking they can, after a couple of years of experience, time the market. It's a bit of a, goes back to that overconfidence idea. I think you have to recognize also that chances are, because of just the way that information flows, when you hear about and you get excited about investing as a new investor, chances are you are being sucked into something near the top. That's just how, otherwise you wouldn't have been hearing about it, right? If it's down, if everyone hates it, you're not hearing about it in any kind of news flow. And this actually applies to me as a value investor. Like I got into value investing in 2000, let's say six, seven time period. Well, guess what value investing had been doing for the last like six years? 
absolutely crushing everyone, right? So I was a momentum value investor in a way. Like I got sucked into the top of a value sort of run. And naturally, because you hear about it and like, oh, well, this just makes a lot of sense. Like, of course, this is the right way to do it. And it's working. Like, of course, like I'm a genius. Like I should be doing this. <laughs> this is easy. <laughs> this is very easy, right? And I think that applies to all investment styles. You get sucked in near the top, most likely. Like statistically, chances are, if you hear about it and you're new to the game, you're getting in near the top. And you ha- just have to recognize that and go slowly and try to find yourself and find your sweet spot where your personality matches with the investment and recognize that <laughs> chances are actually it's not going to be whatever's happening right now is how you're going to, to actually do well and just be ready for that. That's a very good point. That's a great insight. Think about the poor people that have started investing in 2020, you know, for the last two years, the roller coaster that they've been on. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And I mean, it, it would be very sad if this experience disabused them from ever wanting to be owners of businesses via the stock market. I mean, that is a huge loss for them as a vehicle if they decide that, you know, the game is rigged or stocks are for suckers or it's only a gambling instrument. That could be true. And and Munger even talks about this. He'll say that sometimes stocks are priced like businesses and based on cash flow. And sometimes they're priced like Rembrandts and it's more about just <laughs> what is someone willing to pay for it? So recognizing, you know, are you in an investment kind of market? Or are you in a Rembrandt market? And, you know, we've been in a Rembrandt market for a couple of years there, you know, call the end of 2020. Well, let's start at t- 2009 really to say, you know, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then uh, again, like a even more, you know, kind of ecstatic Rembrandt market for 2021. It kind of feels like maybe we're at the the end of that now and we're a little going back more towards profits over promises, but we'll see. No one really knows the answers to those kinds of, <laughs> you know, where's the market going questions. No, none of us do. Yeah, it's I mean, like you said it's been a very interesting environment since 09. Obviously, nobody has a crystal ball, but how much hope do you have for some sort of reversion to the mean of like how the market used to be. There's a lot of ideas going out there. Value is just taking a new form. And I think there's some other ideas that maybe it will revert and we're starting to see that now. Do you have any thoughts on either of those things? Obviously knowing nobody knows. You know, I think you have to there's lots of different ways to skin the cat. And you so you have to, like I said, do what is matches your personality. And I think that there's definitely like business value, the creation of business value is morphs over time as it should, right? Like, you know, 150 years ago, half of us were farmers and that, you know, we were subsistence, you know, hand to mouth basically. And now, you know, we've specialized enough and gotten enough output from, you know, every industry to where we can find our little niche where we can provide even more value. And you know, that is going to change over time and it should. Otherwise, we're not making progress as a species. So naturally, the owner of these businesses also has to think about how things are changing and recognize where things are going. With all of that said, I do think that, you know, reversion to the mean is still an incredibly powerful force in the universe. And I would say that it's not, I don't think it's dead. I think buying cheap things, however you define cheap, you know, is will work over time. I think that markets mean revert as well. And I think we will spend some time below the mean at some point. You know, that will be when real investors are kind of tested. Uh, and it'll Ben Graham has this saying that like bear markets are when stocks return to their rightful owners. <laughs> and so, you know, I think there'll be that time period again and a, a cleansing. And and that's what you need to generate good returns. Like you need 
you actually need pain and you need a reset of a washout of the exuberance. You actually need it to be on the other side of it with negativity and, you know, people. The Death of Equities was a, a famous article that was written in 1981. I think it was in Forbes. And it was, uh, it pretty much marked the bottom of a, you know, 17 year bull market run. So those are the kind of things that you have to have at the bottom to have a truly epic kind of bull run. And the bull run doesn't come from, a, I don't think, from a period like today where you have a very high multiple of earnings being paid for most businesses. You have profit margins through the roof compared to like 1981 profit margins were down at like 2% and now they're at like 14. Basically every like metric that you would look at to say, okay, can we like go in the other direction from here? Like we're kind of pegged out at the upper end already of where most of these data sets have lived for, you know, in some cases, thousands of years, if you look at like interest rates. So Anyway, long story short, there's still always interesting things to work on and learn about. And there are pockets that will always be available and like smart things to do. So don't, I'm not saying like, don't get out there and work. I'm just saying, you know, be a little more conservative and expect that, you know, it might be some tough times from here, actually. And that you actually should be looking forward to that because that's when the real investors will reassert themselves. And that's when like the real, you'll start actually making like the real money that you deserve to make and not sort of like to the moon as an investment thesis. You know, I just... I don't, that was never really sustainable. Yeah, totally. So you are obviously somebody that's spent a lot of time studying this and you spend a lot of time looking at the companies that you end up buying. And so I'm wondering what kind of, what kind of vehicle do you use to kind of keep track of your, your investment thesis? Like how do you track, you know, Hey, I'm going to buy company A and five years from now, how do you look back and see why did I buy this? And is that still in play now? Yeah. So I had this very problem for a long time. And I also knew that there were all kinds of little data points, like what I would call like dark data that were going without being captured that I knew were important on the input side of the process that were driving results. And it kind of drove me nuts that like I wasn't capturing these things. So for instance, just even like a very basic example, you know, let's say I'm going through and looking at a bunch of different businesses and maybe I spend five or 10 minutes on one and just kind of look through the financials real quick. And I just decide, eh, not for me. Okay. Well, passing on that idea is an obvious thing. We all do it. But why did I pass on it? And as a base of all of the times that I said, eh, not not that into it for this reason, maybe it was too much leverage or it's too expensive or the business like returns on equity aren't good enough for me or whatever the reason code was that I kind of used internally. How does it go on to perform from there? So what really, what is the cost of my filtration system on the front end? And I wasn't keeping track of that. And so how would I know if my filtering is getting better or not, unless I'm measuring these things? Mm -hmm. So little and like a million other little things like that, that I felt like were going unmeasured that I wanted to know about myself for my own process and to get better. And really, at the end of the day, it's about closing feedback loops, because that's what's required to start learning and actually build intuition about things. You have to have feedback loops closed. So it was driving me nuts so much. And I was like looking around for some solutions and I couldn't really find anything that was in what I was looking for. And so I basically decided to start building something myself. And I've teamed up with a couple of just amazing co-founders that are a joy to work with. And we've hired employees. And so we've been building this software now for almost a couple of years. And hopefully maybe within the next, maybe by the end of the year, we'll launch an actual public launch. And the name of it is, is called Journalytic. And the idea behind that is that it's journaling on the front end. So that's kind of your interface with, you know, getting your thoughts out into this. 
and then analytics on the back end to help you understand yourself better, understand your decision making, which is where the key thing really drives is how do we improve your decision making? And so closing those feedback loops through analytics and reports on the back end that hopefully help you understand yourself better, that make you improve at a faster rate. To kind of like illustrate, hey, by the way, here's where you missed these base rates like three times. And it wasn't just a one-time thing kind of a... Yeah. I mean, the idea is really like, you know, if you do this diligently, one, you learn about yourself, but two, like don't make the same mistake twice. If you're doing a good job of sort of post-morderming, you know, like when things went wrong, you know, that's how Munger would say, like rub your nose in it, in your mistakes. And so a lot, this makes it a lot easier to recognize like, oh, okay, here's where I'm making the same sort of mistake over and over again. And I actually have a behavioral bias here that's hitting me. I need to be aware of that and get nudged a little bit away from that so that I don't keep doing it over and over again. Yeah, I like how it's kind of focused on the opportunity cost side, which kind of fits in with what you were talking about with Google. I think it could be one of those hidden blind spots that you don't even realize you're doing it because it's just part of your everyday filter. And that, you know, there's so many different ways you could screw up. Why not take some time to figure out if your system's like out of date or needs some adjustment? I'm glad you brought up blind spots because that's 100% the right way to think about it. In fact, somebody who I know who's done a lot of studying about human behavior and you know why do we do what we do says that like that actually all mistakes come from blind spots because otherwise if it wasn't a blind spot you would know and you wouldn't do it, right? And so right. like he's he basically says like you can almost, you know, all these if you go through like poor Charlie's almanac where he goes through like I think the 25 behavioral biases that affect human psychology this person would say like, you don't need 25 of those. You just need the one and it's blind spots. And so revealing those blind spots is a big part of what we're after with this software is to just help you see where are you making the mistakes. Yeah, that's awesome. I wish I would have had that 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, same here. That's that's exactly why I was like, shoot, we got to get building this, I guess, because I'm not going to get better at the rate that I want to unless, unless I start closing these feedback loops. But even like we have some other kind of cool stuff that's lined up there. So... Imagine that you're just sort of journaling about a particular idea and you're just dumping your thoughts in there. We're actually building an API like where it will do a natural language processing of your word choices and assign a sentiment score to that journal entry and then overlay that on the price of what you're, you know, as you're journaling about that idea, we can see how your sentiment is changing over time and show it to you so that you can get a sense of what I think most people are going to discover is that price is driving your sentiment in a major way. Like how you feel about the company, how you interpret that next piece of data that comes in from a 10Q wherever is colored by what price has been doing recently, which is not the right way to be thinking about it. Like you should be recognizing the fundamental numbers regardless of what price has been doing. And it's just incredibly difficult to do. Like we're all guilty of it. And conversely, you know, if the price has been going down, you're like, oh God, I hate this company sucks. Like, and I'm filtering every new piece of data that comes in with that sort of lens. And what our, hopefully our feedback that we're going to give you through your sentiment analysis will let you step out away from that a little bit and take those glasses off and be able to look at the real data, the real experience without being jaded by whatever the recent kind of sentiment, the recent price has been driving your sentiment. Oh, that would be so cool to use and see people use. Yeah. Yeah. 
Amen. I mean, I think about when you're in it, like right now we're in 2022. So a lot of the way we think about the market today and whatever opportunities are in the market can be influenced by what we hear from CNBC, how we talk to our colleagues about the market, all of these things. You know, I haven't been doing this forever, but it's funny to me to hear the bemoaning of people talking about 2020 and how, you know, oh, it should have been so obvious that I should have bought this stock or that stock. Oh, yeah. It's like, no, you don't remember the conversations that everybody <laughs> no. was having that had so much to do, not even with the stock market, but where the world was going. And we already two years later have forgotten so much of that. I mean, our memories are so fallible. It's unbelievable. And that's another big part of wanting to just write things down is that when you can go back and see what you were actually thinking, it's it'll blow your mind. I mean, you will literally not recognize what was written there, but you know it was you. <laughs> it's crazy. And that I think the being able to see that about yourself and see how much it changes you, I think is just such an advantage if you start doing it, especially if you're younger and a, a beginner. It's almost table stakes at this point. Like if you want to get better, you really have to keep capturing these things. And the problem is is that if you just rely on your own memory, you know, your memory works in that it is almost like it's not this perfect recording of what happened. It's a a replay of what you kind of think happened. And the more that it sort of replays, it tapes over it. And as it does that, it'll drop data points that might threaten your ego, actually. And so it will want to just get rid of those things that kind of make you question, you know, your own self-worth. And it's just trying to protect you. Like it's not you know, it's nothing malicious, but it means that your connection to what actually was happening and what you were thinking at the time is a very tenuous connection when you go trying to just remember. And so writing it down is just such an advantage and it's such an obvious good idea that, you know, I just really couldn't recommend it enough if you're a beginning investor. Yeah, I'll also put emphasis on that because I'll read some of the newsletters I wrote four or five years ago. I was recommending companies to people and it makes my stomach kind of turn a little bit to think. And what's funny about it is how much sometimes you can either be wrong or just have a blind spot on something and still make money on it, which to me is kind of encouraging that you can have a lot of thoughts that are really wrong, but still do pretty well if you stick to some key principles with your investing. Well, and I think that is, you just hit on one of the biggest problems that is the investment world is that the feedback loops are incredibly long and they're very noisy, which means it's a very difficult learning environment. It's what researchers would call a wicked learning environment as opposed to a kind learning environment. A kind learning environment is where feedback is unambiguous. It's instantaneous. It's every single time it happens. But in the investment world, it can take years sometimes to figure out if you were right or wrong. And you can 100% be right or wrong for the wrong reasons. You could be right for the wrong reasons. So another thing that I recommend that a new investor does is to actually make probabilistic predictions about certain company fundamentals. So you could say, I believe that Apple's revenue will grow at a 10% clip and I'm 70% sure about that. And I think that profit margins will be, you know, this, you know, let's say, 20% or greater, and I'm 80% sure about that. And what you're wanting to do is accumulate a bunch of data of your predictions. And the reason to do it probabilistically is that then when you can go back and look at all of them, you can see, okay, when I said 70%, that should happen seven out of 10 times as a base case. And if it's not, then I'm not calibrated correctly, right? And so that will reveal where you're overconfident or underconfident. But To have, let's say I'm making like five fundamental predictions every single year about a company, whether it's, you know, the the revenue growth rate, the profit margins, the multiple, the dividend, share count, 
whatever, all these things that are sort of the natural drivers of returns, you can start to accumulate five data points for every one price data point that you would get over a year. And what you'll start to see then is like the price could go up and you could be way off on your projections. And that's a very dangerous place to be because you are actually, you're showing a lack of skill in your predictions, but your price, like your return is showing that you're doing well. And that's when you're going to get your head cut off on the next time because you're wildly overconfident about how good you are at this. Or conversely, you could be doing great on your predictions and the market is not agreeing with you at all. (laughs) And that could just tell you like, okay, I just need to kind of stay the course. I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to end up where I need to. Eventually the market has to agree with what's happening fundamentally. It's just a time period that's a little bit unlucky. So untangling luck versus skill, you can do it over 20 years of an investment career based only on price. But a lot of people want to know that answer sooner. And the way to find the answer sooner is to make you know five predictions to every one price data point and to start accumulating a bigger sample size faster so that you can start to get a sense of do you have luck or skill? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's obvious that you spend a lot of time thinking about that. And it kind of shows, shines through how you're thinking about how can I make myself better, my skills better, knowing that over the long term, this is going to make better results in the market. It's not about what's my portfolio going to do next year, but how can I make better and better choices probabilistically? And then my chances just improve the more you invest. Well, the only thing we really have control over is our process and our mindset. And so focusing on those things, I think is the only smart thing to do. Like the results are going to be what they're going to be. And you don't have a whole lot of control over them. The market can do, can make you feel stupid for long periods of time, very long periods. We'll test your resolve. You know, that's probably how it should be. Like if it was super easy, I don't, you know, it would get competed away. And so the fact that it's difficult just means that there's that many less people who are likely to be following that same thing that you're doing. That's usually a good sign for when it's going to start working again is when everyone hates it. <laughs> so <laughs> at least that's what I tell myself to, uh, to keep going. But, <laughs> but yeah, I do think that like process is, is the only real lever that we have to focus on is just try to get a little bit better every single day and you know go to bed a little bit smarter than you woke up, as Munger would say. It's a very important framework. I think there's a lot of wisdom and experience and knowledge behind it. And I highly recommend for people... Maybe store this download away for the next time you start losing faith. Remind yourself that maybe how you're evaluating yourself might have a blind spot. So Jake, we really, really appreciate your time. I The time flew by for me. I mean, I thought there was so much good stuff here. You have a great book, which we didn't even get a chance to talk about. The Rebel Allocator. Just real quick, I think people should check that out. It was one of my favorite reads this summer. It's basically a fiction book about capital allocation investing. It's a great read for even if somebody who's not familiar with the business world or investing to learn some of the key principles. And a lot of it reminded me of Buffett. So that was a really cool read and I highly recommend it. You have also the the software that's going to be coming out that we should be looking out for. So remind us again what that is and then also where people can learn more about you and what you got going on if they want to follow what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. The software that's coming out on decision-making is uh, called journalytic.com. And so you can go there now and sign up on the wait list. And we've been onboarding people kind of at our own pace because we want to make sure that it's a good experience. And really like we're learning from, you know, each little cohort that comes through, you know, how do we do this better for the next one? So we're not completely open yet, but hopefully we'll be open. in, like I said, in the next few months, maybe by the end of the year. Yeah. I tend to put a, a lot of public stuff on Twitter just as an easy place to kind of, if we want to keep up, 
what I'm doing. Not all the time. Like I try not to spend so much time on there, but it is a little bit addicting to be honest. <laughs> so on Twitter, I'm at Farnham, F-A-R-N-A-M, Jake one. So that's, that's where I do a fair amount of kind of public dumping of sometimes what I'm thinking. Sometimes it's just pictures of hikes. Sometimes it's research papers that I like. Sometimes it's just promoting my own stuff. That's Twitter. Yeah. And then the book is uh, Rebel Allocator. It's available on Amazon and physical ebook and got a I had a voice actor record the audio version. I thought he just did such a great job with it. I was very so happy with how that turned out. And luckily for all of you, I didn't do it and you didn't have to have my like nasally drone pretending to be characters. Uh, so that was definitely a big win for the audience. <laughs> he, did, he did the female characters very well. Yeah, yeah. He, he was so good. Like he had all the, he had the range to get all the different characters in there, yeah. and I thought he did such a good job. Yeah, he did do a great job, but he had great material to work with too. So it is a great book. I listened to it on a long drive back, and it actually made me cry. So it was very touching and it was very informative, and I I literally couldn't stop listening to it. So if you have not checked it out, I highly recommend it for whatever level you are. It's it's a fantastic book. It's uh, very educational and it's very emotional. So for me, it was so. I enjoyed it. it. Touched me. So, Jake, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time out to, to come talk to us today. This was awesome. There was so much great stuff you laid on us, and I, I'm going to be thinking a lot after we get off of there. So, appreciate you doing that. And even though we didn't get to share any veggies, we did get to talk about some of your favorite stuff. So that was cool. So, again, everyone, check out everything that Jake's doing. The Value After Hours podcast. If you've not listened to it, it's a lot of fun. The three of them have a great time talking to each other, and it really shines through. So it's it's one of my favorite podcasts. I listen to it every week. So without any further ado. I'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety. Emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.